0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. A new regime in financial policy and market behavior is unfolding, and the patterns of the past decade are facing a period of adjustment. Schroeder's Asset Management believes this new regime will be driven by several themes, including decarbonization, deglobalization, and demographic change. In today's episode two of this Schroeder sponsored series, we're going to zero in on decarbonization as a hybrid approach to active ownership during the global clean energy transition. Our guests from Schroeder's include Mark Lacey, head of Global Resource Equities, and Carol Storey, active ownership manager. And we'll begin today's episode by reviewing the Schroeder's data that serves as a backdrop to the firm's energy transition investment strategy. Hello, Mark and Carol, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast.
1: Hi. Good afternoon.
0: Very glad that you can join us today. And what we'll start with, Mark, uh, why don't you take the lead here, uh, reviewing some of the data that's important to the decarbonization focus within Schroeder's strategy?
1: Yeah. um, Thank you very much. Um, for your time, and thank you, everyone, for their time, for listening to this podcast as well. Um, You know, the the key thing to bear in mind as a starting point, just as I'll set the backdrop for today's discussion, is that obviously we need to change the energy system long term. Obviously we need to invest a huge amount in renewables, but it's more about the attitude towards conventional energy companies is going to be equally as important as we go through this change. So the way we see things at Schroder's is not that you have renewable companies over here and conventional energy companies over here. One of the first messages that potential investors or listeners will take away from this call is quite simple. The entire energy system is basically now just one energy system. And the reason it's one energy system is because Everyone is aware of the pathway we're on with regards to emissions right now. Um, you know, the, the part the current pathway on emissions is unsustainable for our planet. So the energy system faces these massive challenges. If we go to the next slide, you'll see the massive challenges ahead. And when we say challenge, we also mean change. So we need to decarbonize power generation and we need to decarbonize transportation. And this makes up around about 54% of currently the global emissions. So it's a massive uh, part of our emissions pathway, which is unsustainable. And renewable generation needs to go from 20% of the energy mix today to 85% on a go forward basis, 2050. And 2050 puts us back on effectively a two degree scenario path. At the same time though, electricity usage by everyone is going to increase significantly. If you live in the US or most parts of Europe, the majority of your energy consumption actually is the oil you put in your car and the gas you use to heat your home. When you look at electricity, it's actually a small part of your overall energy mix. But of course, on a go-forward basis, as we start to adopt things like the electric vehicle, your gas, your electricity usage will increase significantly. So the world has to basically now deliver increased renewables in the energy mix, while at the same time doubling the overall renewables in the energy mix versus 2050, just purely through the electrification occurring, while at the same time dealing with population growth and overall consumption growth in electricity, which is why at the same time, we need a significant increase in efficiency of consumption on a go-forward basis. Now... When we look at the next slide, you can see that we're effectively putting a huge amount of capital across one entire value chain. And we can call it one entire value chain because it's the entire system that needs to change. You know, the, the the gasoline networks have to change to become electrification networks. The gas-fired power generation has to be changed to renewable power generation. But it's not, it's not windy all the time and it's not sunny all the time, so we need a huge amount of storage applications. We also need to basically change our transmission and distribution networks to really cater for this massive change. And you're going to have a lot more and more off-grid applications occurring. So residential solar is potentially a huge growth area just because you become less reliant on the grid. And when we step back and look at the cost profile of renewables, it's really, really positive. Um, you know that it's cheaper now to produce wind and solar electricity on a levelized cost of energy basis than versus gas or coal. But we've also got a huge amount of government support. If we go to the next slide, you'll see that we have overwhelming support globally. but more importantly, you know at this point in time, the, the US in particular is really fast forwarding um, their policy towards basically becoming energy independent. And they're doing this through basically adoption of the Inflation Reduction Act. And if you keep loading the slide, you'll see as these areas pop up that we can see all these regions that basically um, are committed to basically changing their energy system. As I said, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act is a huge positive. But, you know, even if you step back and look at India's policy of targeting 450 gigawatts of renewable power generation by 2030, it's safe to assume that if they actually achieve those targets, they'll use up a huge amount of the international wind capacity alone by 2030. So what we need is a huge amount of investment going into this space. Now, we have this backdrop of unbelievable growth in renewable energy, while at the same time, you could say, well, what does that mean for conventional? Does that mean it's over for the oil and gas industry? If we go to the next slide... This paints a more realistic picture of what happens when globally we start to increase our EV adoption. And, and certainly by 2030, you know, we could see at least 40% EV penetration globally. What does that mean? 40% EV penetration means for every one EV that enters the market, you're still adding 1.5 internal combustion engine vehicles. So you're seeing still seeing a net growth in oil consumption. Now, OPEC today said they still believe that oil demand will increase to 130 million barrels a day by 2045. We believe it's going to be somewhere closer to 115 to 120 million barrels of oil equivalent in terms of oil demand. So that's growth from today's levels of 100 million barrels a day. So we still need to keep investing in this area. If we go to the next slide, because there's so much pressure for these conventional energy companies to actually change their business model, what you're seeing is actually net investment levels are falling and this will put pressure on the energy system over time this lack of investment in oil and gas is really illustrated well on the next slide where we can see it's this redirection of capital which is causing the shortage in conventional markets major oil companies shell bp even exxon are starting to change where they allocate capital the chart on the right shows that by the time we get to 2030, over a third of the capital will basically be directed to effectively um, non-oil and gas investments and with effectively low carbon solutions. This, is, this, in, this investment rate is basically set with a backdrop of rising oil demand, but more importantly, gas is becoming a very, very efficient, important energy transition fuel. It's definitely a transition fuel, in order for India or China to decarbonize, they need to increase their LNG imports, so that's liquefied natural gas. And India and China in particular are very, very fast-growing markets. And Europe, who is currently short gas, will be competing for China and India for cargoes in 2023, 2024 and 2025. And we have in front of us a very, very tight gas market, as you can see on the next slide. On the right-hand side of the next slide, you'll see basically that the gas market is like to remain in deficit. Now, deficit in gas markets is starting to have an impact on energy transition markets. And this is where I say the two markets are completely linked. We go to the next slide. High gas prices have led to high power prices, and these are the real power prices. These are not the short-term wholesale prices, these are long-term power prices where you can see that the contracted power price has started to trend upwards. It's happening in the US, it's happening in Europe, and it's happening in Asia. And this is important because this is stimulating the investment rates in the renewable sector, because obviously that's driven by basically power prices. What we expect to see over the the next 10, 20, 30 years, we expect to see significant jump up in basically investment rates in renewables. The final slide I'll refer to and then hand it back to Paul for obviously, for the further up, follow-up questions is looking the middle of this slide here. Currently, the green bars indicate what we're spending in clean energy generation, what we're spending in transmission and distribution, energy efficiency, batteries and storage and clean mobility. The dark blue bars indicate what we need to spend to get back to the 2050 net zero scenario. So we need to more than double investment rates on an annual basis, current levels across the energy transition sector. And the oil and gas sector, if you look on the right-hand side, has already started to become a big player in these markets and uh, are key for basically fueling this growth in in investment. So our approach at Schroder's is to invest in conventional and renewable companies and support the transition through that direct investment. Hopefully, Paul, that sets up a perfect backdrop for today's discussion.
0: Yes, thank you very much for that introduction, Mark. Really appreciate it. And what we're going to be doing now is taking a look from, from your perspectives, both uh, Mark and, um, and Carol, uh, about what the global current, the global energy crisis that we're having, how that's impacting our transition to low carbon, And what economic sectors are most challenged in this environment? Mark?
1: I'll start, but I'm sure Carol will will add some bits as well um, as we go through. Um, The first thing to think about in terms of the positioning and which sectors are really well positioned to benefit this environment, we have to understand investment rates and what it leads to in terms of incremental energy generated. The chart on the right um, is scary. To a certain extent, and and I'll, I'll dissect it for for the listeners. Quite simply, if you spend around 150 billion dollars of capital in gas, you add around 5,000 terawatt hours of electricity. If you spend 150 billion in solar and wind, you add basically 300 terawatt hours of electricity. So, anyone on the call, work this out straight away. You need to spend 20 to 25 times the amount in solar and wind just to get the same amount of energy, um, that gas equivalent. So what it means is we need to really start spending aggressively, Uh, but in the short term, this really underpins why gas is a transition fuel and is one of the sectors that will basically benefit from um, this as we go through this energy transition. And I'll, I'll come to it later. I know Paul will ask me this question, but ultimately the US is sitting in a very unique position to provide globally this transition fuel. If you look on the next slide, please, you'll see that the market is effectively in a deficit, um, and it's in a deficit while at the same time we've had to see a huge decrease year on year in terms of industrial demand, mainly in Europe, because obviously the Russia-Ukraine crisis, but ultimately As we come out of that crisis or as Europe starts to recover its demand at the industrial level, it needs to source that liquefied natural gas from those external areas. And and the US is a big beneficiary and Qatar is another beneficiary. The competitive environment remains very, very strong. I've already touched on this slide, but you'll see the competitive environment is really stimulated from the fact that emerging market economies, such as Korea, India and China, have a huge need for natural gas in liquefied form. And that the market, even as we go through a, a, an energy transition scenario or a path to net zero, you still see the LNG market globally growing from 400 to 550 million tonnes per annum. So, what are the three main growth areas or three main beneficiaries of this market? The next slide captures this in one simple summary. The first on the left shows basically the U.S. sitting on a very, very unique position in terms of export capacity and from going from a being the third largest provider of liquefied natural gas volumes globally, the U.S., by the time you get to 2028, will be by far the dominant supplier of, of, of natural gas molecules into those international markets. The second area which will benefit is actually the solar market. We expect earnings upgrades and we expect volume upgrades, um, particularly in 2024 and 2025, all the way out to 2030, mainly because prices have come down, while at the same time people's reliance on off-grid solutions is increasing and increasing. And the third area is the heat pump market. Because natural gas prices are likely to remain quite high globally, because you're basically having more and more people coming off grid, you're also going to have people converting to heat pumps away from natural gas in the home. And again, pricing the product is really stimulating that. Paul, hopefully that answers partly answers your question. As I said, I, know, I think Carol will have some comments as well.
0: Yes, Carol. I uh, Thank you very much, Morgan. Carol... M- Schroeder's really focuses uh, on a value chain approach to to stewardship with uh, companies that you invest in. In what ways are, is this being reflected uh, in your stewardship activities, the data that uh, Mark has been presenting to us?
2: So Schroeder's has a firm-wide climate program, and it is one of the key levers that we're using to meet our net zero commitments of clients with a goal, of course, good resilient investment returns as the world transitions. Now, this programme covers, we think around 1,000 companies, to 2030 might be a little bit more, um, as we see the progress that companies make over time. And it involves, A lot of of our analysts and RPMs. So, actually, 170 were involved last year alone. And and the approach we take is is systematic. So, what that means is we're not just picking on a couple of sectors that we think are big emitters, maybe just focusing on the supply of of, um, oil and gas. It's a whole economy approach. We select companies um, using a combination of emission data, target data, so to look at the actions that they, they are taking, and of course, our own exposure. And what this means at a fund level, I've got an example here on, on the left hand side, is that with this particular fund, 50% of the, the, com- the companies being held by this fund have planned climate engagements for this year. But of course, we may have ad hoc engagements as, as things develop over the year too. And it will include oil and gas companies, industrial companies, utilities, and even, even solar companies in, in this particular example. I also wanted to point out the types of things that we're engaging companies on. So at the core, of course, are companies' ambitions, their net zero ambitions, the targets that they're setting, whether they have those credible transition plans. But then we try and look at certain things in a lot more detail. So things like climate risk and oversight. Is the the board prepared? And does it understand this risk deeply? Uh, The the actual decarbonisation actions that a company's taking do they make sense are they credible uh, does this technology even exist today um just transition now some people react quite strongly to that term but essentially the social issues that that may arise as a company changes its business model adaptation of course as the world gets warmer uh, companies will need to adapt their, their processes carbon capture removal and of course deforestation and then uh, the final type of engagement that we um look at are the sector specific. So I've got a few examples here. These are plentiful, lots of different examples. Uh, But for the energy sector this year, we're looking at methane and biofuels for our EMP holdings and integrated energy companies and um, SF6. So sulfur hexafluoride um, is used across the energy system as, as a whole in transmission and distribution equipment and actually is it's an issue for even wind turbine equipment. So even those renewable companies, there are quite important discussions to have about potent greenhouse gases. So I also wanted to, to highlight something that is very topical this year, and that is voting at energy majors. So as a little bit of background, for the last few years, A resolution has been filed about greenhouse gas emission targets at oil and gas companies. And this year, it's specifically focused on scope three emissions. Now, the strategy updates of companies like Shell and BP have been well publicized. But if you look at the European majors, Shell, BP, Total, they all have all encompassing net zero commitments and targets covering scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. In contrast, the US majors, Chevron and Exxon don't have that all encompassing wider uh, commitment beyond their operations. And that actually, Chevron does have a scope to be target, but it is not as ambitious as those of the European majors. And I think what's really ha- interesting is, is seeing how shareholders are, are responding to, to this resolution. Uh, support was stable this year versus last year for the European majors, whereas it actually fell. In um, the US, there's some really interesting market reactions or kind of shareholder reactions to to these resolutions that, that I wasn't expecting. For our part, we supported the resolution at Chevron and Exxon, but we didn't support it for Shell, BP, and Total.
0: Okay, so let's move on from our in our discussion here. And Mark, uh, I believe that you have some additional. Um, information that you want to share with us given the the next um, section of the program, and that is related to nuclear energy and how that's going to play a role in this entire process of transition to a low-carbon economy.
1: Yeah, and thanks for the question, Paul, because When it comes to nuclear, it could probably use up the entire hour, which we've allotted today for our listeners, but we won't do that, because I don't think that's (laughs) fair on them. But there's such a debate around nuclear. um, And obviously, not in my backyard is the biggest problem with nuclear. But when you step back with nuclear, it's actually one of the most safest and used to be one of the most reliable forms of energy generation, clean energy generation, just to be really clear. Um, Obviously, the events of Fukushima, um, as you can see on the left-hand slide, uh, caused obviously their dip in nuclear power generation over time, and you see recently it's recovered back up to early 2000 levels. But actually, um, net-net, nuclear power generation really hasn't increased, um, as I say, for the last 20 years. One of the biggest problems at the moment is not just reliability, which... Early pressurised water systems, large-scale early pressurised water systems, have started to see problems on reliability, particularly in France. They've been going through huge maintenance. The second area is actually, if you go to the next slide, is costs. And the the chart on the left really shows you why we've seen this acceleration in wind and solar, uh, particularly in the last four to five years in terms of adoption rates, and the reason being is, you started from a position in 2010, wind and solar was just ridiculously expensive versus all other forms of, of energy. And now you've actually seen a, a significant decrease That so it's by far the cheapest form of energy generation. In contrast, nuclear has just seen a steady rise, and that's the red line on the left-hand side. But the red line on the left-hand side doesn't tell the whole picture. Uh, if you look at recent construction rates on nuclear power generation, um, you've got you've had a step change up in terms of the overall cost profile. The slide on the right-hand side shows basically um, Flamanville and Vogtel and obviously Hinkley Point in the UK. Hinkley Point in the UK has been an almost embarrassing cost overrun with regards to um, nuclear power generation. And this has really left... A stalling in policy globally this concern on costs still the perception obviously of safety and reliability um, but there is actually a solution and this is a solution here at Schroeders that we we're actually quite interested in terms of investing and the long-term potential and that's small module reactors if we go to the next slide you'll see there's lots of um, different designs of small module reactors you have you know companies like NuScale, um, in the US, we have Rolls-Royce here in the UK, um, and these are exciting because new sc- uh, if you look at new scales reactors or Rolls-Royce reactors, all you need is two or three of them, and you basically have enough generation capacity to power a local town or a local city. But at the same time, obviously, they don't use up as much land mass. They don't use up as much resources from a um, uranium supply perspective. Um, and in terms of concept design you know they, they are just small scale, literally exactly what they say on the tin relative to a large scale fusion. So it's one area that if we start to get see an acceleration in permitting, this is an area we expect to see an acceleration in terms of adoption rates post 2030 I want to calm everyone down in terms of how quickly we see this growth come through. post 2030 is when you start to see these reactors being more adopted. So that leaves this window. That leaves a window where we still need to increase capacity globally. Solar obviously captures a huge land footprint, and it leaves one technology in particular which will see disproportionate growth rates, which is offshore wind. If we go to the next slide, you're going to start to see adoption and instalment rates of offshore wind really pick up over the next two, four, six years. This is an area where wind turbine sizes have gone from two megawatts to now 20 megawatt turbines. So whereas in the past you used to have literally 30 wind turbines to basically produce a viable amount of electricity for a small town, now you literally only need five or six to basically produce enough electricity for a small town. And and a, and a small city in the UK, not necessarily in the US, in the UK, you're looking at closer to basically 30 wind turbines powering enough power providing enough power to actually power for our city on an intermittent basis. So the step changing technology in offshore wind provides a perfect gap before we start to see small modular reactors starting to take hold post-2030.
0: Okay, so Carol, what are you thinking about nuclear as an emerging topic related to shareholder engagement and stewardship activities at Schroeder's? How is that unfolding at the moment?
2: It's still relatively early days for us on this, and we don't have big exposure. Uh, And as Mark said, actually, the industry itself has a relatively good track record on health and safety. But when accidents do happen, the effects, of course, are very severe and can be long lasting. So the things that I would be thinking about will will be does health and safety issues differ for those smaller scale projects? How do they compare to those bigger scale projects? Are they going to be on? Going, how is there going to be ongoing resistance from maybe governments, local communities, uh, and and how it, is the company going to to manage that and, and consult? In terms of the environmental effects, of course, management of radioactive waste is is, is a key, will be a key focus, and of course, the impact on water resources or cooling systems used by um, nuclear processes.
0: Okay. So now let's move on and talk about the economic regulatory and policy constraints or the possible constraints that could inhibit the the growth of this energy transition and all the strategies that you've been focusing on so far. Mark, um, um, tell our listeners uh, what you're focusing on related to that and Schroeder's investment strategies.
1: Well, I mean, you, you touched on something in your statement there, Paul, that governments could actually constrain the energy transition. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, you're, particularly governments will be volatile in terms of their policy and that may slow the transition. However, I'm not going to talk about that today because, again, that could easily take up an hour. Okay. Um, the, um, the, the three charts you see here show the acceleration you're going to get across the energy transition sector. These are conservative estimates um, you know, with regard to renewable energy capacity forecast, global electric sales, or stationary storage. Just three examples of three energy transition markets. However, there are definitely going to be constraints which will basically slow this growth. And the the first real um, constraint is actually availability of materials. And if we go to the next slide, and and look just in the middle, um, if you look at virgin material for basically the internal combustion engine, Uses around about um, thirty to forty kilograms per vehicle. If you look at the electric vehicle, and you look at basically nickel usage, copper usage, um, manganese usage as well. It's basically almost five times the amount of intensity on a mineral basis for those specific minerals. Exactly the same when you look at you know um, wind generation technologies as well, and overall basically EVs and energy storage. So the obvious constraints in the short term if we go to the next slide will come from basically copper markets and actually also lithium now in copper let me be very clear what is the best way to solve an over uh, an under supply is basically price price will basically moderate demand in certain areas such as construction in the copper market while at the same time it will stimulate supply so that demand supply deficit you see on that chart may not Necessarily come through. All we're talking about is basically higher prices. In the lithium market, um, we will have constraints. No doubt about it. We don't have enough projects. There are some marginal projects in Mali. I don't know if anyone's intended to go there on holiday. I'm certainly not. And developing a project in Mali is very, very difficult. So, under all scenarios, you know, we will have to basically have um, a, a key technology adopting into basically the supply chain, which brings us on to the next slide, which is basically recycling. And what we're starting to see being developed in line with obviously the speed at which the battery manufacturers are ramping up the capacity for um, high nickel content batteries or lithium ion sulfate batteries. We're seeing the recycling industry start to basically see net investment levels pick up now as well. And the reason being is we need recycling to enter the market for lithium recovery, for nickel nickel recovery, and obviously for cobalt recovery at the same time. So we're not pessimistic. We just see that we need a huge amount of investment in these areas. And this is this really brings me onto one conclusion from that question. Anyone who doesn't think the energy transition um, investment period is inflationary in the short term, I think, is missing the point. The energy transition will be inflationary in the short term for people, basically, with regard to using, obviously, a vehicle or with regard to their power generation on a go-forward basis. Short term, but then long term, long term it's deflationary.
0: Okay, Carol. So what are some of the emerging risks, and, and perhaps they're regional in their nuances, that are relevant to engagement from the standpoint of um, uh policy, and regulatory constraints.
2: I think the biggest risk to the transition is that we forget about the people at the center of it. This idea of the just transition, what it really is, is a people-focused transition. Now, in the broadest sense, that means we need to think about the workers and communities that rely on coal and oil and gas uh, for their income and, and how they are being supported through the transition. We need to think about the affordability of energy and the resilience of the energy grid, really, really important issue. But we also need to think about human rights risks in the supply chain of critical minerals. So if you look at the chart on the left, you can see that minerals for the transition are actually often sourced from areas where there are ongoing conflicts or perhaps large indigenous populations that will want to be treated equitably in any project development. We also need to think carefully about how land is being used. On on the right-hand side, actually an increasing amount of land is being used for biofuels. So we need to look at whether that is actually competing with crops, with food sources, and is it resulting in things like deforestation? Now, that doesn't cover everything, but it's just a few examples of of the breadth of the the social risks to do with the the transition. In terms of how we're responding to that, there are a few things that we're doing. One is collaborating. So we're collaborating with the PRI Advance Initiative, uh, looking at human rights in, in the mining sector. We have expanded our objectives, our engagement objectives for companies on the just transition. So this will include asking companies to look at the social impacts of their transition plans and engaging on communities and and workers. And we are currently establishing a set of engagements with utility companies on the treatment of indigenous communities when they are developing renewable energy projects.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for those comments. And Mark, now we're moving on to clean and green hydrogen. Uh, there's an awful lot of news about this on a daily and weekly basis, and there seems to be an awful lot of capital that is moving into projects and, and being invested in companies that are focusing on clean and green hydrogen development. So the, when does this start to play a significant role in our energy system? And from your perspective at Schroeder's, who will be the structural winners here?
1: Thank you very much. So the reason it's such an important question is because um, we already use a lot of hydrogen well, in, in terms of as a, as a feedstock for individual industries. But in terms of the scale and amount of hydrogen we need, we're going to need a, an incredible amount of hydrogen to decarbonize basically sectors outside of transportation and outside of energy generation. Obviously, I, I touched on it earlier that these two are core subsectors, energy generation, and transportation, they, that's basically responsible for about 50 to 55% of global emissions. But obviously that's not all of it because obviously you've got industry emissions. And the only way you can really bring um, the emissions of those industries down is you can't really electrify. You need to basically use hydrogen as a feedstock. And I reiterate, we already produce this fuel. We're already very, very good at it. But obviously what, what Paul's alluding to is can we produce it in green volumes on a go-forward basis and just for everyone on the call I mean blue hydrogen is um, traditional gas produced hydrogen but obviously with carbon capture and green hydrogen is purely from electrolysis. If we go to the next slide it just adds some context to how quickly the hydrogen market basically develops. The hydrogen market really starts to take off 2030. Now it's coming from a low base at the moment but what you need for the hydrogen market to really really get going is you need bunkering you need transportation through pipelines and obviously through trucking and you need processing and processing we're in very very early stages through obviously electrolyzer driven um production of green hydrogen even gray hydrogen is uh, even blue hydrogen sorry is in limited supply at the moment the reason being is obviously we need to apply carbon capture technology to that as well so for anyone looking to invest in hydrogen and saying, well, okay, I'm going to invest for the next one or two years, you're going to be very disappointed from a volume perspective. Your real acceleration in volumes comes through post As You can see right in the middle of that chart there, you see this ramp up in volumes. So who are the leaders? You know, Who's going to really win from um, these technologies? And it's so easy just to invest in an electrolyzer company priced on a multiple of sales, for example, because they don't make any money. These are not going to be the big leaders and big winners in hydrogen. If we go to the next slide, this is where the traditional energy company comes in and plays a really, really important role. To play a leading role in hydrogen, you need to be able to process, transport and store hydrogen. This is what these companies do already with an incredibly important safe track record. That's so important that they are industry experts in this area and all of these companies that you can see across the top there are already heavily investing in this area and in also in carbon capture as well to decarbonize industries in fact when you look at these companies they're investing in also in offshore wind onshore wind solar even lithium when you take the example of gal and these companies are already directing 20 to 30 percent of their capital towards these low carbon solutions so the real structural winners in hydrogen are basically the conventional energy companies, which is why, again, Schroders have a policy of investing in both conventional and renewable markets and engaging with these companies, particularly the conventional companies, to ensure that their transition of their business happens in a profitable, but also a progressive manner.
0: Good, well, Carol, how are you engaging with the energy majors on their ongoing developments of low carbon solutions?
2: So I wanted to bring it to life a little bit. So what you have here, for for those of you following the slides, is a illustrative engagement plan for an integrated energy company. Now, this is a company that we have held for a very long time, and the company's response to climate change has been a key part of the discussions uh, with PMs and and analysts, um, and, and these are strategic discussions Now, because it's a a large holding, we will have multiple engagement points over the year. You can see here we've had a discussion with the CEO, a very climate-focused deep dive. Uh, We're planning to have an additional climate discussion later in the year. We also incorporate our voting strategy. So I talked a little bit about voting at oil and gas majors earlier on. That is incorporated into our overall plan. Uh, We think about how we might collaborate with others. And and also, we monitor and track the objectives that we have have sent the company or asked the company to, to deliver. In this case, the company actually has a net zero commitment. It has interim targets, and it has published a detailed positive transition plan. So our Real focus is those engagement opportunities you see on the left-hand side. And these aren't just things that I've come up with. These are opportunities that have been identified by our investors. So things like stranded asset risk between different assets and regions, opportunities to to retrofit some of its existing assets to support decarbonisation, huge discussions um, every time around capital allocation, and even climate, climate liability risk. So how the company is responding to recent legal actions.
0: Okay, well, Mark, uh, you and Carol have already given us some information on our next question, and that is the role that conventional energy companies will play in this low-carbon transition. But why don't you want to expand on that?
1: Yeah, if we we start with the the first slide. Um, And I've already touched on hydrogen and carbon capture on the previous question, Paul. So what I'm going to do for our listeners um, and viewers is basically just highlight other areas where these integrated companies are investing. And then what I'm also going to basically highlight is not just the integrated energy companies, conventional US gas producers, and also um, oil field service companies. Because I think these are two underappreciated areas about uh, um, uh, why they're important investments and where investors can look for, basically see transitioning companies. On this slide, you can see renewable power generation targets, You know, a large independent power producer in Europe is EDPR. You can see that on the right-hand side of the left-hand chart. And they're already big. They're already around about um, 17 gigawatts per annum in terms of renewable power generation. Total Energies on the left-hand side, by 2030, will have 100 gigawatts of power generation. Shell, close to 60 gigawatts. I mean, these companies are going to be dominant players in these markets. Exactly the same happens with regards to the hydrogen markets but I want to reiterate it's a post-2030 ramp up in those hydrogen markets as I mentioned earlier. We'll go to the next slide. This is the bit that's less talked about in the conventional energy sector. Um, many of the listeners would have heard of Baker Hughes in the oilfield services sector. We have a company called Fugro in Europe here as well. Baker Hughes is an oilfield service company but they have a division within LNG, where they make turbo compressors. Um, the turbo compressors uh, are used in LNG, but also they're gonna be used in basically produ- production of um, ammonia for green hydrogen. And so what you see is over time is Baker Hughes's business model becomes more and more dominant in industrial and energy and energy transition technologies on a go forward basis. And so what you have is a, a company that's dominant in all for services sector, but it completely transforms its business model Fugro, if you go back, is, a, is an oil seabed uh, survey company, and it used to be oil and gas dominates, as you can see in 2015, and that's because the majority of their seabed surveys was for the oil and gas sector before they a the oil. As of today, more than 60% of their business is renewables and infrastructure, and the reason being is, if you're gonna put in a, a turbine offshore, you still need a seabed survey. And so, again, there's value, and, and our approach to investing in these companies, engaging in these companies, is you, they can transfer their business mix at a, at a rate that we feel comfortable, both for shareholders, which is important, because um, so we have to make money for our share, uh, for our clients. That's one of the most important things for those pension fund holders. But also, we don't want to destroy the equity value within growth. So we're looking for a moderated and, and stable rate of change for that business that can be managed. The last area, which I want to highlight, is obviously coming back to gas as a transition fuel. Um, it's going to be really, really important to basically come off coal in the short term. One of the easiest ways for us to really reduce emissions globally and really get us back on that path, right pathway, even towards net zero, is basically you have to start with basically moving coal from, um, to gas. The US has actually been very forward thinking in this area, particularly in the last 10 years. Uh, and the US is also sitting on a unique reserve and resource position, particularly across the east coast of the US, but also obviously in the Midwest as well. But the US has a dominant position by reserves and gas and it's low cost gas, gas reserves. And by the time you get to 2028, as I've already highlighted, there will be the dominant supplier of gas globally. So there are lots of areas for where you can invest in the conventional market, where you expose yourself to the energy transition, but, but still having conventional exposure.
0: That's great. Thanks for those details, Mark. And Carol, um, how are you engaging with these conventional energy companies to make a big impact on their, their carbon reduction? How is that going?
2: So for EMP companies, we do discuss opportunities for diversification outside oil and gas. And those which are best placed as the world transitions is for people like Mark, um, our investors like Mark to allocate and, and capital to and invest in. But what I wanted to highlight here is there are still significant opportunities for greenhouse gas emission reductions within oil and gas companies' operations. This graph here shows hydrocarbon production against carbon dioxide, methane and nitrous oxide emissions for the top 50 US producers. And it's not simply the case that the largest producers have the most emissions. And this trend is played out all over the world. So if you think about something like methane, one third of anthropogenic methane is from the oil and gas industry. It's more potent than carbon dioxide, but it stays in the atmosphere for less time. There is significant potential for the industry to reduce its methane emissions in the short term, potentially by 75% through things like leak detection and repair programmes. Now, it varies dramatically, and part of this is because of geology, because of the types of hydrocarbons being produced and and the surrounding infrastructure. But it also varies because of things like companies, policies and practices. Another area that I'm quite concerned about is the the potential for underestimating methane emissions and underreporting of flaring. So really what we're doing in our engagements is looking for that good practice across the industry and and sharing that. And that will cover things like leak detection and repair, about target setting, um, companies' involvement in initiatives like aiming for Zero or the OMGP framework, um, capture and and, utilisation and flaring practices.
0: So, Mark and Carol, thanks very much for your time today. And uh, where online can U.S. investors and financial advisors learn more about Schroeder's and the work that you're doing there in asset management around the globe?
1: Yeah, thank you, Paul. And thanks for your time today as well. Uh, Investors are welcome to obviously access our www.schroeder's.com website or for those uh, institutional investors as well and independent financial advisors by all means, please please contact your distribution contact, and we can get get even more detailed information to you as well.
2: You can find out more about our active ownership practices on our website, too. Thank you.
0: Okay. Well, thanks again to Mark Lacey and Carol's story of Schroeder's, and to our listeners. Join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast.